Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. We'll pick up this evening in Genesis 3, verse 14. And this is really where now the consequences of Adam and Eve and their sin begin to, to be made known. I think until this point, and, and certainly it's, it's to some degree speculation on my part, I don't know Adam and Eve in, in their heart and mind in this moment. We only have what Scripture tells us, but it seems to me like there is to some degree, a, a lack of awareness, even though they've now eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they've become aware of, of many things, uh, even their own nakedness, and with that has brought shame. I think to some degree they've not yet really grasped the magnitude, the consequence, the significance of their sin, but that's going to come here as God not only I think deals out consequences, but in some respects even states, here's what's going to happen because of what you've done. It's not just about God saying, I'm doing this, but here's what's going to happen because of your actions. And so it's through this that I think Adam and Eve start to really begin to understand what they've done, what the effect of that will be. And oftentimes that's the case with sin. Sin, of course, as we know, it results because uh, we've been led astray, we've been deceived, uh, we've believed in a lie, we enter into that sin, and, and sometimes it takes us a while to really begin to understand what will happen and the, and the consequences of that. And that's what's happening here for Adam and Eve through the remainder of chapter 3. And so um, let's go ahead and just for the sake of context review from last week, verses 9 through 14 then the lord god called to adam and said to him where are you and so he said i heard your voice in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself and he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree of which i commanded you that you should not eat and then the man said the woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me of the tree and i ate and the lord god said to the woman what is this you have done and the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate, and so the Lord God said to the serpent, and we'll pause there and pray. Father, thank you again for our time together this evening of worship and song, and now of your word, and Lord, we, we want to learn, and we want to study your word, we want to know it, we want to know you, Lord, more, and I pray each of us, Lord, wants to give your spirit the opportunity to work within us. For as we've considered even already tonight, Lord, our, our world is, is ripe for a move of your spirit. And we're so blessed, Lord, that we are a people that you desire to use uh, in your work here on this earth. And so, Lord, uh, may we be a surrendered people, ready to be used by you, and uh, just having a hunger, Lord, for your word. And so teach us here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Now here, uh, we have the context that they're, they're hiding out, right? They're, they're, they're covered in, in fig leaves. They're hiding in, in the bush. They're ashamed. Their attempt, uh, their own self-righteous attempt to cover their sin and to hide from God speaks to us in our own sin and our own failures. And again, having not really come to terms yet with all that their uh, sin will affect here now, God begins to communicate this. And he starts first with the serpent. In verse 14 it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The snake, more than any animal, was cursed as a result of the fall. The snake itself, in terms of the animal, independent of Satan, just the animal was not at fault. The snake here is just sort of the, un the unlucky victim. Okay, uh, Satan was the one who was at fault, who inhabited the snake. And remember, and, and this, some of this stuff, right, to some people sounds like, now oh, this is kind of crazy, but I mean, th this is the insight we get in Scripture that it seems likely that one, remember that animals can probably talk, if not that, communicate in some, some way more so than what they can today, that the snake itself would probably upright um, not slithering around on the ground, that it was likely very beautiful, and so maybe very colorful, very tropical. It was interesting, right? It caught Eve's attention. And uh, Satan uses this animal as a way to appeal to Eve. 
And so, it, unfortunately, it becomes one of the one of the animals that's most significantly affected by the fall. But it's all of the animals, ultimately, though. But the snake in particular, why? Some people say, well, why, why would God do that to the snake? If the snake didn't do anything wrong, it was Satan. Well, God is the creator of all things. Okay, and God created those animals for a purpose. While, while, yes, we should care for animals, God saw fit to have a consequence associated with this animal, and most likely so that it could serve as a reminder to humanity for all time of here is one of the sources of the fall, right? To see a snake. And so for many people today, when they see a snake, what do you do? Do, you, do most of you in this room, if you see a snake, run up to it, grab it, and hug it, and try and cuddle it? You don't, do you? Most people don't, okay? And so uh, here comes the curse, and it begins first with the snake. And so whatever its beauty, whatever its posture before, it would now slither on the ground and eat its prey from the ground, and all animals, not just the snake, would experience the effect of the fall as death enters into the world. And it says here in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, God is still talking here to Satan and and maybe even to some degree the snake. Uh, Enmity between you and the woman. Now, generally speaking, as I've just mentioned, it is true that people don't like snakes. It's sometimes, and please don't, you know, don't come at me with this, but it seems to be the case, generally speaking, that Women really don't like snakes. Fair, f- fair general statement? General, okay? Is that not kind of interesting to think about, right? But even more so uh, regarding Satan, this is true. And not just of women, but of mankind. That there is enmity between us and Satan. There is almost ingrained in people without even teaching them sort of an appropriate fear and resistance to Satan and to things that are evil. On Halloween, it's sort of a general thing that when people go all out with all their Halloween stuff, and every one of you knows one of those houses, right? That it freaks people out. There's a reason why horror movies are horror movies and why they're considered scary movies, right? I mean, aspects of of evil and things that are satanic generally elicit a common response in people. And any anomaly with this is indeed just that, a strange exception that is not normal. When you find people that are just super into things that are, by most people, considered evil, you're like, "That's, that's weird. That's messed up. That's not normal. There's enmity that's been created there from the very beginning. And what's great is that Satan assumed that he had lured them in. And to sin he did. Yes, he was successful in that. But their, but their decision to take of the tree did not result in an allegiance to him as no doubt he thought it would but rather an adversarial relationship. And so it is that the great deceiver also deceives himself regularly. As Satan would see, but never really learn, even to this day, is that his attempts to be God are not easily won. And God goes on to say, "In between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the passage I was referring to earlier that is called the Proto-Evangelium, which really means the first gospel. For here in in this passage here, God himself begins to declare the good news. Do you see this? At the very beginning of Scripture here, we're only in Genesis 3, God himself is declaring the good news. What is that good news? It's the truth of the gospel. That from the woman... Note, from the woman, not from man, would come an offspring, a seed, who though he would be bruised by Satan, how is it that Jesus was bruised? Well, he was crucified upon the cross. That may seem to us like more than a bruise, but within this context, that's absolutely what it is. Though he would be bruised by Satan, though Satan would think that he had him, he will defeat Satan, he would defeat Satan and redeem mankind. 
And this work was very much accomplished upon the cross and is still yet a final defeat of Satan that will take place. And so here in the very beginning, though God does not expressly state it, what we see here is God's plan of salvation. We see here the good news. We see here the gospel in the beginning. And so guys, we've got to consider this because what is, what is God doing right now? Within the context of the verses right here, what is God communicating? These are the consequences of sin. What's happening right here is God is communicating to Satan and to Adam and to Eve, here is the result of your sin. And yes, within that are consequences. Within that are, is the awareness for Adam and Eve of, of what they have done and the fact that their life is going to change and that there's going to be separation. There already is separation that exists that wasn't there before between them and God. But even in the midst of the consequences of their sin, God says, I will save you. I will save you. Can, can I get an amen on that? That's incredible. And so that is, this is the first gospel God's saying here. There's going to come one. And you'll bruise him, Satan, but he will crush your head. I like that translation better. And so we even hear as God is, is, is no doubt grieved over their sin as He informs them of what the consequences of their sin are. And I know I'm being redundant, but He says there's going to come one from you, Eve. He'll deliver you. And that's a really incredible thing to consider as well because while I am not suggesting that Adam and Eve's sin is a good thing, the fact is, when God created, He called it all good. And to me, that means that what He redeems and what He calls new through His infinite grace and mercy is perhaps even better. And that's what grace is. That what we experience today through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternity, and as Jesus, as we know in Scripture, says that, that He is coming back and that with Him is His reward for us, that it's going to be incredible, even better than what He had created here at the beginning of time. And to the woman He said in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Amen, moms? But this is the unfortunate truth and the effect of the fall. That just like everything else, you know, God intended for procreation to happen. God intended that Adam and Eve would bring forth children. And He didn't intend for it to be in such pain and difficulty. That is the result of the fall. But notice, even before He speaks of conception and He speaks of bringing forth children, He simply says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. And I don't want to dwell on these things here, but it's interesting as we consider some of these things. And again, I speak generally here. I mean, there's differences for everybody. But as you look throughout history and as you look throughout our world and in different areas, in general, women know a sorrow that men do not. Not only are women generally speaking more, and I mean this in a positive way, emotional creatures, with men, the ability oftentimes to just sort of turn certain things off and oftentimes to our detriment. Yet women experiencing emotion differently than men. Having a connection to humanity often different than men. And so whether in emotional makeup and, and in the response to circumstances or even in the broad experience of women throughout history, women have suffered. I mean, the original women's liberation movement was in response to ill treatment and equities and inequalities. And, 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 and there was a real reason and a justified reason why women fought for the rights that they deserved as individuals created in the image of God and equal with men in God's eyes. And the ill treatment that women have experienced is not God's desire. This is not, though it's a result of the fall, it's not what God wants but it certainly ties back to sin and to its consequences. And that's what I mean when I say 
you know, there are certain things that God does in response to sin and certain things that are just the result of sin. And yes, here God says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. I believe that God did these things as consequences. And that's where we don't know fully what sorrow speaks to, but we can look at history and we can say certainly women have experienced sorrow. Sorrow and pain, too, will be associated with childbirth and with child rearing. It's going to be a difficult job, God says. And through the course of life, as men fulfill their role that God has called them to, a role that was given before the fall as the leader of the home, women will also struggle against this, God says. as He says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. You see, there is a biblical relationship that's intended, and we've considered this already in Genesis 1 and 2. It's God's design, but that very design as a result of the fall has become a struggle. And we're blind if we say that that doesn't exist in this world today. That there is a struggle between men and women. There is a struggle between husband and wife to rightly identify and fulfill and live out those God-given roles. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. By the grace of God, it does. And we stand here today as we consider the consequences of sin. Praise the Lord, we get to say, Jesus, you died for us. And you've redeemed us and you've begun to work in us to sanctify us and to change us. And so we experience things very differently than what's described here because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But it's still a struggle, amen? There was a, a, a pastor panel, a marriage panel. It was pastors and pastor's wives. And every one of those couples spoke to the struggle that is marriage, the challenges that come, the difficulties to work through. That's what this is. Then to Adam in verse 17, he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. I'll pause here for a minute. Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, it, it seems here that Eve has, it was the one to inform Adam. Uh, as we know earlier, she's the one to have brought the fruit to him. There's some debate as to whether or not Adam was right there with her at that moment or if he was in another place and she brought uh, the fruit to him. The fact that Adam here heeds the voice of his wife to me is suggestive of the fact, as I shared last week, that he was not there with her at the time. You know, and we don't know this for sure. We don't know the answer to this. Again, people are divided on this one. I'm of the opinion that he was not there, not present with her when she ate. Nevertheless, like last week, I stated that Adam is not absolved of his responsibility, but rather it was his responsibility to be her covering. If he was fulfilling his role, his God-given role, he would have been an appropriate covering to her. Now, does that mean that he has to be with her all the time so that he can prevent her from being deceived by the serpent and eating the fruit? No, that's unrealistic. But it certainly, it certainly has bearing on how he handles this situation at this point. Because what's happened here is it is apparent that Eve has sort of become Adam's idol. That rather than heeding the voice of God, heeding the word of God, obeying what God has said, that with his wife's words, he becomes complicit in the sin. Now what should Adam have done? If we consider Scripture in its entire context, and we look particularly at the, the New Testament, and we consider passages there on marriage and the husband's role in marriage, we can, we can draw things from that. We don't know in the garden exactly what it is that Adam should have done. My opinion of what Adam should have done this moment, if he was doing what he was supposed to have done, is instead of in idolatry and for whatever, whatever it was that motivated Adam to participate in that which Eve had participated in, he should have instead said, no. God was clear in his instruction about that. We're going to go to the Lord. We're going to go to the, the Lord and we're going to repent. And we're going to trust him to cover us. Now, it didn't go down that way. We don't, again, we don't know exactly where this was to go. But instead of seeking to cover and to redeem and to plead, I mean, think about, think about Moses when he's there on the, on the mountain with God. And God basically tells Moses, and this actually happens a couple of times, but it becomes apparent that the people are doing some foolish things. And what does Moses do when God basically says, I'm going to take care of this? He pleads with God. No. 
Lord, please, let it be me. That, in my opinion, would have been Adam's role. But he doesn't do that. Instead, as we know, and we read here at the beginning, he says, it was her. <laughs> Lord, it was her. It was the woman you gave me. I mean, he completely fails to do what he was supposed to do. And so there's absolutely consequences for Adam as well. As God says, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. What is God saying here? Adam, work is going to be hard. Work's going to be hard. Now, it's important for us to understand, work is not the curse. A lot of times people want to say, well, work, man, if it weren't for the fall, I wouldn't have to do this job. No, we are called to work. Adam was called to work there in the garden. The difference was, his work before was going to be easy. It was going to be joyful. He was going to enjoy his work. Some of you know that. A couple of things. Some of you have uh, work that you enjoy doing. You have hobbies. You like to work on your home. You like to work in your yard. You get enjoyment out of it. You're getting a glimpse of something that God has intended. Furthermore, when you experience what God has called you to, what He has created you for in many respects, You've heard the saying, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Sometimes with vocation, we experience aspects of what God has intended when it's just purely joyful. But in those moments, which quite frankly are more frequent, it seems, when work just seems hard, we have to go, man, this is just a result of the world in which we live. But I've got to be diligent in it. I've got to move forward. And so here he says, Adam, you're going to toil. Until you return to the ground. So he says, work's going to be hard until you die. <laughs> until you die. And so that can sound super depressing, right? But that's just the fact of the matter. Is he says, work's going to be more difficult. And now, and this is really kind of the key consequence of sin, is that now death has entered in. Until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so man now is no longer immortal. With sin comes death, and now we see, now we see, because of this, this very thing that's happening here, we see in our world today a general rule that things are not ageless. Moreover, things don't improve with time in terms of, of, of their condition, but rather they decay. Right? That's part of like a law of thermodynamics, right? Anything that remains, and I don't know how it's stated exactly, but it will decay. I mean, that's what we see in our world. It was like two weeks that we didn't have people coming to the church regularly. When I got here, it was ridiculous. The number of bugs and spider webs and just different things over the doors and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And it was an incredible spiritual metaphor. It was, we were able to see this on display. That It was just like, that quickly? And anybody seen the vine out on the side of the building? This thing has been, God says, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. But he says, you're going to have to toil for it. Be because before there weren't crazy weeds like that that would eat a building in a week. I was driving through part of Atlanta, and they've got the kudzu there. And, and this, there was this big sign. It said 10 acres, and it includes the house. And you can see a house somewhere in the midst of all this kudzu, right? And you're thinking, nobody's ever going to buy that. That's crazy. And it just, it just swallows things. That's what's happening in our world. Yet, evolution, right? Yeah, we're all advancing. We're all getting better, figuring this thing out. No, we're not. It's going the other way around. Romans chapter 5, just for our benefit to really understand it here. And again, I want like it has to be understood here because there are so many biblical concepts that are rooted in this that, listen, Adam is held accountable here. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, 
who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And you can read on there for your benefit, but we see that God holds Adam accountable. And then in verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now this may seem like an interesting verse to all of a sudden be present here. But the fact is, if you think about it, to this point we have not learned of a name for Eve. Nor does it seem that she had one. Adam had called her woman because she had come from man. Now before you call Adam a chauvinist, thinking, well, up until this point then, he's just been walking around in the garden saying, woman. Because today that wouldn't go over very well, right? I'm not, I, I'm not advising that. That is the, the truth. He was referring to her as woman. But before you sort of think ill of Adam in this case, please understand that his name was what? Man. That's what Adam meant. So when he calls her woman, he's just, he's just going based off of what? She came out of me. I'm man. She's woman. And so the fact that he's been calling her woman and now in the midst of this, decides he's going to name her Eve is actually a pretty sweet thing. Because as he has heard God speak in this moment, what he has heard God say is, she's going to bring life. She's going to have children. From her, from the seed of the woman, would be one who would prevail over Satan. And so considering Eve's fall into sin... Once again, note that through Adam, death enters the world. Yet from Eve comes the one who would bring life. And Adam recognizes this. And Adam, as we know, has, been, has become quite good at his job, which has also included looking at everything that's been brought before him and naming it. And it's in this moment, I think, again, speculation, that Adam says, I haven't named her yet. I'm going to name her Eve because life is going to come from her. You see, even in the darkest of moments, there's a light that comes in and speaks to redemption and speaks to reconciliation. Yet for Adam and Eve in this moment, they're still naked. And quite frankly, their shame has likely only increased as they learn of the consequences of their behavior. And so now we come to a place where God cares for them in a physical way, which is a lesson to us as Christians as well. James touches on this, right? That we need to, we don't just recognize a need and say, hey, God bless you. We'll pray for you. But we meet that physical need, and here God does just that. But God also sets forth a pattern for the forgiveness of sin. And so we read in verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now to this point, Adam and Eve had attempted to cover themselves with leaves, with the cover of some bushes they thought they could hide from God. But what we need in our sin is not our own self-righteousness, but His righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 tells us this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It says He's clothed me with garments of salvation. And what is it that God in this moment provides for them? As we read in Genesis 3.21 again, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Here God's provision and His plan for salvation begin to unfold. He's spoken to the fact that a seed would come, that though it would be bruised, it would crush the head of Satan. And now He clothes them in a way that would be a pattern moving forward. One verse... One verse here in verse 21 that we can so easily read right over, yet this is the beginning of God's redemptive plan as He covers their nakedness and their shame and He begins to set forth this pattern that leads to Jesus Christ. Here in this seemingly simple act of covering, remember that, again, here they're naked, they're hiding in their sin and their shame, they'd attempted to cover it, but they could not, only God could. 
What is it that they could do? Fig leaves were the best that they had, and Christian, it's the best that you had. It's the best that you had in your own attempts to cover your sin until you came to Jesus. And God here, He takes coverings of animal skin. Now this word covering means that it would cover them. This would do more than just the fig leaf. This was going to be a garment for them. And so we know that this would require two full animals, most likely. And so here in this moment, as the covering is prepared for them, what they are experiencing now and seeing now for the first time is death. Two animals, likely lambs, given the pattern we see in Scripture, but we don't know for sure. God slays them before them. These are animals that Adam had named, that he had become familiar with, that he may have even befriended in some way. And now he's confronted here at the very, almost the beginning of time, or the beginning of creation, confronted with sacrifice. So not only have they now learned of the consequences of their sin for themselves personally, but they begin to learn that there's effects on other things as well, and consequences for other things as well. And that to be covered requires blood to be shed. And again, this begins to set forth a pattern for the covering of sin. Look ahead for a moment to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering to the fruit of the ground, of the fruit of the ground, to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Genesis does not give us this, but we have to assume that between this first sacrifice and and the pattern we see here with Cain and Abel, that God had laid out for them a process, a sacrificial system where they would bring their offering to the Lord. And I believe it stems from this and this experience here in Genesis 3. Leviticus 17.11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And God does this work. It's a work of grace completely and entirely. Adam could not contribute. There was nothing that he could do. He could not do it for himself, nor can we. Furthermore, the animals were innocent given here and sacrificed for the purpose of covering and for atoning. Now Abel's sacrifice was of the flock. Again, likely a lamb. And this began to set forth the pattern even further that we see then woven throughout Scripture. And this is why, guys, when we look at this, not only should we be encouraged here that in the midst of their sin, God cares enough to cover them, but that He's also communicating here a pattern that will be implemented throughout the course of the Old Testament. And then it also points us to the very salvation that we ourselves have experienced. Let's look at a few different verses here. Genesis 22, 8, it says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. There was confidence there for Abraham. And we'll consider this story here many weeks from now where Abraham depends on God once again to provide a sacrifice. And we know that that's an archetype. That's a picture there of Jesus. Or, of course, in in Exodus chapter 12, as well as in Leviticus 16, we have the instructions for sacrifice. We have the Passover and the instruction for Passover. We considered that not that long ago in our study of Hebrews. And what was significant about that? But that God asked for them to go and get a sacrifice and to sacrifice it there between the doorposts of their house and to spread blood on the posts and that the angel of death would pass over them because the blood was upon their home. It was their protection. It was their covering. Or how about in John, in chapter 1, verse 29, again, as it points us then the entire, and we could, I mean, my goodness, we could spend all week considering the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But as we look to John, in chapter 1, verse 29, what do we read there? But as John the Baptist looks and sees Jesus coming towards him, 
right? And he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's in John 1.29. And then elsewhere we see in verse 36 of John chapter 1, verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Again, it's declared as they look at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. And do you see these connections here? And we can go on. Let's look at Acts. In Acts 8.26, now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all our testimony. Here he comes to him, and he see, Philip sees him. And he begins, to, he begins to declare the gospel to him. And it's one of those amazing divine moments here as this guy's reading and, and, and he wants to know more. I mean, how often is it that somebody's just like, hey, tell me about Jesus? It's not typically that easy, but here for Philip, he knows, man, this is my opportunity. And where was the Ethiopian eunuch at this particular time? Where was he in Scripture? But in Isaiah, as it says, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened out his mouth. This is verses 32 and 33. And his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus. He preached Jesus to him. He was the lamb. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 1? knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with, verse 19, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In Revelation 5, verse 9, the entire chapter there really is about the, the Lamb. And here in, in Revelation 5, let's look at 8 and following. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is the Lamb. He goes on in verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation chapter 6 and verses 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, we could go on in, in Revelation chapter 7 and verses 9 through 17, and in Revelation 17, verse 14, and Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, and Revelation 21, 7 through 9, and, and pretty much all of Revelation 22. And over and over and over again, we see a picture of Jesus as the Lamb and the necessity of that Lamb's blood to cleanse us from our sins to be our covering. And that's in Revelation, consistently throughout Revelation. They're at the end of the book, and we go all the way back to the beginning of the book and in Genesis 3, and we see that God Himself is communicating here, saying, you shall bruise His heel, and He shall crush your head. And He goes to cover Adam and Eve, and He takes of the lambs, and He sacrifices them, and blood is shed, and Adam witnesses this, and He sees this, but He knows before this, He was in shame and nakedness, hiding from God, and now because of the sacrifice, because blood was shed, Adam and Eve stand before God again, no longer ashamed. Do we have a sense of the significance of what God has foreordained before time? Why? Because He loves you. And prior to what we see there in John 1.29, as I considered even last week as we thought about just the entire sacrificial system and the process throughout the Old Testament and then the years of silence before all of a sudden a prophetic voice comes into the world again saying, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world is that before that, before Jesus' ministry commences here, the atonement was temporary. 
It needed to happen over and over and over again. But here, because of Jesus, it's final. And then the Lord God said in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This can be difficult to understand, this verse here, especially because it says, Behold, man has become like one of us. And it seems to suggest then that aspects of what Satan had promised was maybe true and that God felt threatened somehow. But rest assured, God doesn't feel threatened. God's not fearful. God's not scared. This can be difficult to understand, but I think this is really that God is saying here, they know evil now. They've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it means they know evil. They are now sinful people. And as such, a good and holy and righteous God cannot allow them then to remain in the garden and eat of the tree of life and live forever. Sinful people that would live forever. And some would say, well see, what kind of God is that? That He feels threatened by them and then wants to just end them? He just wants to get rid of them? He's not going to let them live forever? No, He's not because He's a good God who knows the effects of sin. And so he can't let that continue, but it doesn't just end there. He doesn't just say death enters the world and now you're all dead. No, he says death has entered the world. But as we've already read in Romans chapter 5, I'll bring life, new life, sinless life. I'll make a way for redemption and reconciliation and renewal. And then in verse 23 and 24, we read, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. This gives me the sense that Adam didn't want to go. I mean, no doubt that God's spirit drove him out, but I mean, I just, I, again, speculation here, but I'm just thinking, I mean, the last time I took my dog to the vet, this is hardly a comparison, but it's funny, right? I mean, listen, Last time I took my dog to the vet, I mean, he, he, most of the time he's able to successfully pull his head out of the collar because he's just like, you're just pulling, come on, come on. God didn't need to do that. God didn't need to pull on him. He had to drive him out. But I, I get the sense that it's like that. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'm going to dig my heels and please don't make me go. Why? Because Adam is aware. Life is changing. The consequences of sin are upon him. And he's got to leave this place of perfection that God had created for him. No, he doesn't want to go. But God drives him out, and he places the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now again, people, and this is, we'll, we'll, we'll stop here on this verse, but we've got to understand this, folks, because listen, if you, if you leave here tonight with any, with, with a sense other than that God is so merciful and so gracious, then you've missed the point. Because yes, as we consider here the consequences that God doles out as a righteous God, but yet even within that, as we've already considered, He says, there's a plan, there will come one, and I'm going to cover you, and I'm going to care for you, and yet still we come to this place, and some people see, they say, see, God just kicks him out of there, because He's not a forgiving God, and He sets these angels and a flaming sword so that nobody can get in there. Well, nobody, you're not paying attention if that's the perspective you have of God that he's just this guy who's going to block the way. People need to study the Scripture to really understand what's happening. Yes, is he guarding the way to the tree of life? Absolutely. And we've already established that because he can't have sinful people eating of a tree that brings immortality because he's got something better in store. It's no differently than when any parent today, any good parent today, withholds something from their children that yes, children, in the moment you think that's good and I want it, why are you keeping it from me? which is the very thought process, by the way, that led Eve to sin to begin with, instead of trusting that it must be for my benefit. And so yes, God blocks the way for their benefit. But what does He block the way with? Not just the flaming sword, but Scripture says here, cherubim. Do you know what cherubim are? Do you know what they're used for? These are the most incredible angels that God has created. Satan was at one time the chief cherubim and all throughout scripture cherubim signify the presence of the glory of god what does that mean why is that cool why are you all excited pastor brennan 
Because their presence there in this place, so they're blocking the way from something that, yes, maybe they want to get their hands on, also tells us that this is a place where God would continue to meet with them. Where His presence would continue to fall. Where they would be able to bring their sacrifices to Him moving forward for the forgiveness and atoning of their sins. And if that sounds familiar, it should because once again, this gives us the pattern for what we see moving forward because it's interesting that you know the tabernacle? What else was the tabernacle called? Anybody know the other name for the tabernacle? It was the tent of what? Meeting. That this very place with the cherubim as they were posted up there would be a place where they would meet with God. God also gives them instruction for a tabernacle that they would build. And He calls that the tent of meeting. Why? Because that's where they would meet with Him. And within the tent of meeting, there's a special place designated. Now yes, they couldn't all go into that special place. There was an order. There was a pattern of things. But in that special place, it was called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence would come down to meet with that priest as he atoned for their sins. And in that place, in the Holy of Holies, there was, there was something that was placed in there. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And there in the Ark on the top was called the Mercy Seat that would be sprinkled with blood. And what is it that was on either side of the Mercy Seat on the Ark? Cherubim. Two cherubim there to designate that place where God would meet with them, where their sins would be atoned for. So lest anybody, again, in their foolishness wants to suggest that God is just a mean God that blocks the way. They've entirely missed the fact that God is protecting them, providing for them, and pointing to the atoning of their sins to his desire, pointing to his desire for a restored relationship, for when he would ultimately send the lamb who would take away the sin of the world and when all that would culminate in the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus came to this earth for, the very access to that Holy of Holies would be torn. And in that moment, all those who believe on Jesus Christ and receive his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that draws them under repentance and dwells them at salvation and empowers them and comes upon them, he says, Boldly come before my throne. Boldly come before my throne of grace in your time of need. And so we now experience, as we look back on all of this, we come to a place where we go, man, we get to go there. It's not God driving us out and keeping us out. It's His making a way for us to come back in. Amen? And the final thing I want you to see here is that in verse 23, something else also changes. For this is the first time, and from this point on, through the remainder of Genesis, God in the Hebrew would no longer be referred to simply as Elohim, God, which speaks of a triune God. But he would now be referred to as Jehovah Elohim, or the Lord God. It's in this moment that Adam, likely being the original writer of all of this, as we've discussed here in, these, in this chapter, begins to refer to God as Lord God. Now, this could be, I suppose, kind of sad for a moment because in, in some ways there's sort of this sense of going from a very, very personal, almost a first-name basis with God to now kind of putting on there a mister or a sir but nevertheless, in this, we also see that an understanding on the part of Adam develops that perhaps with his new knowledge and his desire to be like God and know like God and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he has indeed come to an understanding, a greater understanding of who God is. That he is still, yes, dad and friend, but he knows him a little bit more now that he is also all-powerful that he's also all-knowing, that he's all-present, that he's all-sufficient, that he's master and most high God. And in some respects here, it's a wonderful thing that Adam comes to this place where he says, now that I know more, I call you Lord God. And I think in many respects, the same should be true of us. 
that if it's our goal and our desire to know God more, which it should be, that yes, we fall in love with Him more, but we also come to a greater understanding of who He is. And I think right now, not to beat a dead horse, but the challenge I gave you on Wednesday and the challenge I gave you on Sunday, which is, by the way, the same challenge I give myself, that we could be a people that maybe could stand to understand a bit more who God is and the fact that He is indeed Lord God, that He's powerful, that maybe there's an appropriateness for the church right now to develop a certain fear and reverence of Him once again. Right, and in that comes repentance and even a healing of our land. And so I want us to really see what happens here with Adam and Eve. That yes, this is a difficult time, but out of this difficult time is born something incredible that we're the recipients of today. And that ought to be incredible to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord God. Uh, I pray that each of us, Lord, come to you in awe, Lord, of who you are. Lord, that as we study your scripture, even passages we may be familiar with, that as we study them by your spirit, Lord, you reveal new things to us, Lord. You, you, you emphasize things that, in some respects, Lord, it seems as if the words rise up off the pages, Lord, and capture our attention and our hearts and our minds, Lord. And I pray that tonight we've all here in this place seen the significance of the work that you have foreordained before time, Lord, for us. And to state it simply, Lord, that though we don't deserve it, and in our sin and our foolishness, Lord, you've chosen to redeem us, reconcile us, to restore us, and to just pour out, Lord, your goodness upon us and promise us, Lord, a, an eternity with you. And Lord, help us as we are a people who strive to, Lord, know you more. Lord, in all of that, we would be able to grasp and, and even catch a glimpse, if, even a glimpse, Lord, uh, of how great you are, and that that would just be powerful to us, Lord, and would, would impact, Lord, our, our faith and our walk with you. And Lord, ultimately, Lord, as we learn these things, may it serve to fuel our desire, Lord, to tell others about you and the work that you've done for us. And for many, Lord, who consider you to be a distant God or an evil God or an angry God or whatever it is that their perspective is, Lord, may we be a people that point them to your grace and your mercy and your goodness. For Lord, we know you're still at work building your church and you desire that none should perish but that all should come to saving faith, Lord. And, and so we trust that you're still at work and that you're inviting us into that work. And so, Lord... Strengthen us and, and, and help us, Lord, to, to participate in that. And so, Lord, we, just, we, th we say thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. And I ask, Lord, for your blessing upon each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you. Lord, go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org. 